Hey fam, welcome to another episode of the Myths That Make Us podcast. I'm your host, Eric Gotze. The point of the Myths That Make Us podcast is to help you, the listener, and the guest when they come on, identify the conscious and unconscious stories that they tell themselves about who they are and about what the world is. Because I think that, no, I believe that I know that the story that you tell yourself drastically affects the life that you experience. And so I want to help people become conscious of what that story is. What a talking, my friends and my family. Uh, welcome to another episode of the Myths That Make Us podcast. This episode is brought to you by my journaling course. If you're interested in connecting to what I talk about as the daemon, um, if you want to make journaling a habit, this is the dopest thing that I've created so far in my life to help people do that. Um, it's a 30-day course where every week I introduce one of the four fundamental habits or techniques that I use for journaling. And then every day in between, I share a journaling prompt. Uh, the feedback from people has been, they motherfucking love it. There's lots of crying that happens. There's a lot of honest reflection and insight into how they work, why they have the relationships they have, why they have the job they have, why they have the feelings they have. And I'm honestly really proud of it. So if you want to check it out, you can go to ericgotzi.com, click on the button on the top right, and see if it's for you. This episode is with Amanda Bucci. Uh, this is someone that I saw on Instagram through other people sharing her work. She's got this really amazing idea called the four archetypes of, um, I'm not even exactly sure how she talks about it, but she basically explains that there's four major archetypes when it comes to um, kind of doing the authentic dance of sharing who you are on social media and then making money from it. Uh, and I just loved how she merged like entrepreneurship with Jungian archetypes and so I had to get her on the podcast. And we didn't even get to the fucking archetypes because the the conversation and the story was as good as it was and flowed the way that it did. So I'm going to have to have her back on. But for anyone listening who is trying to do anything on social media when it relates to having an authentic business, she is one of the dopest people that I've found in that area. So I'd highly recommend that you check her out. And as always... Thank you for your attention and your love. I truly appreciate it, and it is reciprocated. Nama motherfucking steezy. Amanda, thank you for coming on the podcast. So I saw, I, I think it was probably Adrian who first shared your content where I saw it, and I saw this idea of the four archetypes, specifically as it applies to like people who are, you know, the quote-unquote influencer and i resonated instant instantly and i was like who the fuck is this and what are they talking <laughs> about and then i went to your page and i started to look at the stuff that you had been posting and i was like this is the coolest mix of Jungian psychology and like creating things in the world that people actually respond to and i knew that we had to do a podcast so to start to give people a sense of who they are listening to and projecting all their bullshit onto because they have no idea who you are. Let's say that I meet you for the first time 
and you just finished doing something that puts you into a flow state. And I come up to you afterwards and I ask you, who are you and what do you do? What would you say? Mm, that's a really cool way to ask that question. <laughs> so my name is Amanda. I am absolutely a creator in so many different ways. The way in which I create usually comes through the form of social media, whether it's podcasting or social media posts, communicating with people and actual DMs and building relationships. For the past couple of years, I've been teaching business and I've been teaching it through the lens of the community of people, me being one of them, who have kind of grown up in this social media age or have, you know, been their their journey or their experience and my experience has really been shifting and changing as a human being as I keep putting myself in the forefront or like in the ring yeah. with everybody else who's doing this whole online thing and really navigating the personal journey of that as it relates to what is the thing that I want to put out in the world? What is the gift that I have to share? How am I going to do that? What's that going to look like? What do I have to say? How does that come through? And how do I slice through all of the things that are coming up, whether it's comparing to other people or seeing what someone else is doing? Or how am I relating to myself when that happens? And I absolutely adore observing that journey with myself and so many other people in my audience. And I'm really committed and dedicated to sharing the truth and the honesty of that journey. I love that. And it reminds me of the Teddy Roosevelt quote, the man in the arena. Have you heard this? I haven't. I would like to read it um, because I think it's a poignant point for people who feel called to share and to contribute to some like group that is out there on social media. And what I find personally as a coach is the people who are the most judgmental of the people who are putting out information on social media is that they're judgmental of the people talking to the community that they feel called to talk to, that they're afraid to talk to yet. And that judgment is almost like the shadow side of admiration but it makes me think of this quote and i think it's one of my favorite quotes and it's it is not the critic who counts not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better the credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood who strives valiantly who errs who comes short again and again because there is no effort without error or shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spins himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. So good. You just had that in your back pocket? No, I totally just pulled that up <laughs> when you made me think of it. I wish. <laughs> the time of memorizing poems. Nope. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. I really appreciate you sharing that, and it really does match so well um, what we're really 
talking about here. But yeah, I totally, totally agree. And I agree with the, the point of when people judge or criticize, it's really always um, like that inner projection or like I, I want that or and I'm not taking ownership of that within myself. So let's judge the person that's actually out there doing it. And the person that's out there doing it is probably doing that to somebody else who's above them or they're mm. also expecting themselves to be. And I've totally been there a million times as well. So I resonate as the person in the arena and the person and for the person who's not chosen to put themselves there yet. How would your best friend describe you and what you do? That's a great question. Um, my best friend would describe me, I I'm, immediately thought of my friend Ashley and she's hilarious. She's one of the funniest people I've ever met. <laughs> and she just, she would always point out the fact that I'm always putting myself out in some way. Like I'm always sharing my heart. I'm always sharing my experience, even if it's something small, like I'm always, there's always this interest to or desire for me to show up and share small life experiences or big life experiences or life lessons. And she will always say that they'll come through the lens of whatever the business is at the moment, but that's really always just the vehicle to deliver like the potency or the essence of the message, not the thing itself. Mm. How would your lover describe you and what you do? He adores me. So <laughs> he would always say that I am uh, just a goddess who is, he would always, he always describes me as, as really smart. Um, someone who is, is really masterful at what I do um, in a different way than a lot of people, not in like an I'm a special way, but it's just this different way of, um, it's really like showing up in like the feminine kind of power where it's not very in your face, but it's absolutely felt. And it's like an, a felt sense experience of um, showing up as like a vulnerable person who is sending a clear message, but doesn't have this like, I need you to validate me kind of energy around anything. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How would your father describe you and what you do? <laughs> That's a great question. He, he he's he's like not on social media. He just got a laptop the other day. <laughs> <laughs> he's like, oh, I picked it up at Best Buy on the curbside. I'm like, you could have just ordered it. Hilarious. Um, but he's always been really supportive of me and what I do. So he would say that she does like something online. <laughs> he would probably, I think, I'm not sure if he would use the word coach. He would say business. I think he would say she does online business, social media, something rather. And he has this really like funny mannerism way in which he says things like, yeah, and Amanda, she does this and it's really amazing. And she's really, yeah, she's super cool. Look, check her out. Check her out. <laughs> <laughs> this is like little five, six Italian man. He's, he's great. How would your mother describe you and what you do? My mom is my financial manager, so she works with me really intimately in my business. And uh, she would just say she's she's an online coach. She does Instagram, social media. She has a podcast. Um, she runs a really great coaching business. My mom's really sweet. She's a two on the Enneagram. So she's just like that 
like adorable, lovely helper type that's um, always right there to show up and support. And she does customer service and everyone loves her. And like she helps out of my mastermind and she's really great. And how would your relationship to the divine describe who you are and what you do? Mm. I actually just had an Akashic Records reading yesterday. So this was very, Mm. uh, yeah, very, very relevant. The divine would say that I am here to have lived experience and share that with the world. And I am here to have adventure and to explore different unconventional ways of being in life in a relationship and deliver the message of authenticity and support people through my essence and the way in which I show up to help them also receive that message for themselves And I simply am here to live life and get connected to myself and my soul and my gifts and break down the barriers inside of myself that I have to love and just be on that journey and share it. And like, that's really it. Mm. What is your first memory? Mm. I have a memory of being in... My first house as a two-year-old, and I remember the house had a big open floor plan on the first floor, and the stairs went up, and you could look over the stairwell and see the rest of the living the living room downstairs. And I just remember the visual of that house. That what was, was the like emotion the that's attached to that memory? Mm. It just feels light. It feels like I didn't live in that house for very long. So it feels like it was, I was only there for about three or five years maximum. And there's actually not much there in terms of memory of, of like what those years were really like. Um, I remember just like lightheartedness and play my early child is my, my earliest childhood memories are really filled with a lot of like lightness and playfulness and easiness in a lot of ways. Yeah, I find that people's first memory kind of sets a tone for like the style in which they look at the world. Mm-hmm. And the thing that's coming up in me when I imagine your first memory is like a feeling of perspective of being able to like see kind of the whole plan, Mm. almost like having a clear vision and just being at peace with being able to see more than like what the perspective would be if you were in the room, like you are above the room. Do you know what I mean? I absolutely, yeah. It it feels like I'm looking down at the room. Like I wouldn't have been able to look at that room in that way as a human. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So an interesting thing that happens with children is um, they're either exposed to a movie or a book that they demand be read or played over and over and over again in childhood. What was the story, either from a book or from a movie, that you remember 
like most capturing your imagination as a child? The first thing that came to mind was Lion King. And I also was definitely really into Barney and stuff like that. But like Lion King, I had a Simba toy that I carried around with me. And there's pictures of me taking it sledding in the snow. And my dad says I carried it around with me everywhere. So that's the first thing that came to mind. I love it. Okay. (laughs) So now this is one of my favorite questions to ask. It really might be my favorite question, but... Um, do you want kids one day? I do. So imagine that you're about to tell a bedtime story to your first child and they're around 10 and they're smart and they're curious and you're going to tell them the story of the Lion King in your own words from your heart, not a perfect remembering of how it goes scene by scene, but really feel into the moment of it's nighttime they're asking you to tell them a story and you're going to tell them the story of the Lion King from your heart. Could you tell us the story as if we were your child? Yeah. Beautiful. So in the Lion King is a story where a lion cub gets born into. So I want to challenge you and say once upon a time. So like, beautiful. Not like you're explaining it to us, but you're going to tell us the story. Great. Okay. Thank you for that. Yeah. Once upon a time, there was a young lion cub named Simba. And he was born into the royal family of lions that lived on Pride Rock. And he, as as a young cub, was very... He was very, like just almost entitled a little bit and he thought he was cool and he wanted to be king one day and he was really excited about it and he was walking around with his dad and his dad was trying to teach him about being a king and the responsibility you have to be a king and taking care of all the land and all of the animals and the circle of life and as a young cub Simba listened but didn't fully grasp the gravity of what that really meant and he just wanted to go explore so he took his friend Nala one day and he said hey there's a elephant graveyard far away in the part of the land that's that's shadowy we should totally go and Nala said no 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 we're not allowed to go over there that's the one place we're not allowed to go and he ended up convincing her and the parents said, well, you have to take um, the toucan. I forget the toucan's name. <laughs> you have to take the toucan with you for supervision. Is it Zaza or something? Zazu, yeah, Zazu. Zazu. You have to take Zazu with you for super, for supervision. So they walk down, and they're essentially trying to escape Zazu so they can just go do the thing that they want to do. And they sing some really awesome songs, like, I just can't wait to be king, and they play around with all the animals. And then at the very end of that song, they end up escaping Zazu and he doesn't know where they are. And they go into this elephant graveyard and the hyenas find them and they're about to eat him. They're about to eat Simba and Nala and they run away and it's a whole ordeal. And then um, Mufasa, Simba's dad, comes along, finds Simba, saves his life. And 
Simba recognizes that he really could have just, something bad could have happened. So one day Simba's uncle, I'm really, I'm so bad with like details and names. What's the uncle? Scar. 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 So funny, like details are tough for me. So Scar one day takes Simba for a walk and Scar is the bad uncle. Scar has a lot of resentment for Mufasa because he wants to be king and he's almost like the outcasted lion and he really doesn't like his older brother Mufasa and he has this whole entire plot actually with those hyenas that chase Simba away to take the throne so he is really relentless he ends up taking Simba down into this valley and the hyenas let loose this entire stampede of buffalo and these animals that are about to kill Simba and Mufasa ends up seeing this happening. Scar ends up making sure that Mufasa sees it. He tries to go save Simba and Mufasa was trying to take Simba out of the stampede and it's this really intense situation. And then Scar finds Mufasa um, and he pushes Mufasa off the cliff into the stampede and Mufasa dies. So Simba freaks out. Scar tells him that it was his fault um, obviously is having a huge crisis right now and he's feels absolutely guilty. He just thinks he killed his dad and he goes to run away and he runs really, 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 really far away. He, and he has no idea how far away he is from home. He ends up finding um, Timon and Pumbaa, which uh, they're a little duo of a meerkat and a pig, a wild pig, and he hangs out with them for like his whole entire teenage years, basically. And they teach him Akuna Matata. There's no worries, no responsibilities here. It's just this like fantasy land where they eat bugs and he doesn't kill things. It's a lion. And he is essentially running away from this guilt and this like deep thing that's happened to him. And one day he ends up finding this uh, monkey called Rafiki. And Rafiki is trying to knock some sense into Simba. Um, and what happens is he has this whole experience, which is really like a a deep experience with God where Simba says, uh, Simba, Rafiki tells Simba to look in the water and say, remember who you are. And he looks in the water and he doesn't see anything except for himself. And Rafiki says, look even harder. And he sees his dad and he freaks out and he remembers what happened And in the clouds, you see Mufasa coming through the clouds and talking to him and saying, remember who you are, remember who you are, remember who you are. So Simba um, connects with Nala and she comes to find him because Scar takes over the entire land and it's completely barren and the animals are dying and Nala comes to get him to essentially go back and take the throne and take responsibility. And right after he had the experience with God, with his father and with himself, He goes back to Pride Rock and he takes that responsibility of being the king and he realizes how bad things were and he's really going back there to take ownership of himself and his gifts and his responsibility as being the first son to the king and he really faces off with himself and he faces off with all the hyenas. He ends up actually killing Scar and throwing him into the fire and all is restored on Pride Rock. 
everything gets better. All of the animals start to come alive again and the grass starts to grow again and everything essentially gets better once he goes back and takes responsibility for who he is. You did an amazing job of remembering the details of that movie. Oh my God, I totally, <laughs> that was hard. I had to close my eyes and, and be in it there. So there's a couple of things that come up for me. One is that movie is my answer to this question too. So that's really interesting. Mm. And the reason I ask this question is that I believe that these stories are mythological representations of ways of being in the world that they're that they imply basically a strategy about how to be in the world and that as children before culture can really get to us and tell us how to be our soul resonates with a story that becomes our guide and mm -hmm. so i want to pose the question when you tell that story do you identify as simba yeah i do and what and i'd like you to kind of feel into your path of coming into you know being a queen and do you see the archetypical stages of that story in your life yeah i mean a part of my core patterning that i've been working with a lot over the last 2 years is around, I, I say people pleasing because that's a general term everybody knows, but it's really like the deep fear of um, self-abandonment for the purpose of not hurting other people. So it's essentially like my authenticity or who I am is going to hurt other people in some respect. So I will shut off, dim my light, not be the person that I want to be in like the macro sense, but a lot, like very often I'm noticing in like the deep, deep micro nuance of my psyche as well. And in terms of how that relates to Simba, he definitely, he runs away. Um, something happened to him where he felt deeply guilty. He felt like it was his fault. He felt like he, he thought he killed his dad because of what he did. So he ran away and ran away from his responsibilities and I definitely, in terms of attachment styles, like avoidant attachment is something that I've been working with quite a bit. So it's almost Same. like, yeah. <laughs> so it's almost like that's, that's the representation of the avoidant coping mechanism, right? Like going away and being like, nope, I don't need to worry about taking responsibility over here. I'll just go hide basically. Was there a macro moment in your life that you felt that you experienced deep guilt about something and that you ran away for a while, like in, not in the micro, but in the macro. Yeah. Um, the one thing that I've had come to me so far, it's been, I, so I don't have like a, a particularly eventful childhood. I don't have an eventful, like traumatic, uh, like typical traumatic, I suppose. So finding, I know what you mean. yeah, like finding these, memories has been really challenging for me actually. So uh, I'm in a spiritual psychology program right now. And after the 10 months of our program last year, we did a six day in a row lab where we just worked our process, worked our process again, six days in a row all day. And I finally got to a nugget of potentially something that I had this experience of 
first being in the womb with my twin sister. So I have a twin sister. We're fraternal twins. Um, and my mom had a C-section and she always tells a story that she was supposed to come out first, but my mom had a C-section. So I came out and I essentially kicked her out of the way. And what our, our dynamic has been, um, my mom recently shared a journal entry of us as babies. And I was apparently very direct and very um, clear on what I wanted, even just as a baby and just being a mom she was just trying to navigate the world and she must have chosen my side a little bit more often in some respects. And Lindsay, my sister felt like she wasn't being heard or wasn't being paid attention to. And even now she recently got diagnosed with narcolepsy. So she's almost in this like really deep shut off response, which is fascinating. And yeah. uh, at some point around age 10, I have had a memory of me feeling that and recognizing that she shut herself off. And I had this like deep guilt and deep pain. So my, my thought or like my feeling is that I then shut myself off as well. So that's the only thing I've really been able to access so far. That doesn't feel like it's all the way it, but it's definitely somewhere around the vicinity. Yeah. What's interesting is in my childhood dynamic with my brother and my sister, my feeling was also that my light being as bright as it was made them feel bad about themselves. And so what I did as a child was when I was around them or when I was in any situation that if me being bright would take resources from them, that I would dim it too. And I also have an avoidant attachment style. So I think that that's an interesting connection to see if there is something there. Um, What's interesting is, so you were telling the story of the Lion King, and because it was also my story, there were a couple of moments where I almost started crying. Wow. And for for me, um, the part of that story that resonates with me the most is um, the scenes between Mufasa and Simba, where Mufasa is trying to teach Simba how to be a king. And for <laughs> me... Um, I didn't get that from my dad and I could feel that the tears come at those parts because I could feel that I wish I had had that and I have the deep drive to give that to my children. Um, did you feel that you got guidance on how to be a queen as a child? That's a good question. <sighs> I feel like what's happening is I'm not having memories pop up from my childhood, but I am having memories of my mom and she, uh, so her and my dad got divorced when I was 12 and how that played my out parents was got divorced when I was 10. Interesting. We're, this is fascinating. You said the Lion King was also your movie as well. Yep. Cool. Here we are. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Old <yeah>. siblings. <laughs> so their their divorce actually wasn't. It was very amicable. She, my mom, made sure to never show us any arguments, and she never really told us what happened until um, we were eighteen. And she ended up being like the single mom for us from twelve until we were eighteen. And my dad was a, around in some respects. Like we saw him on weekends and he would show up and we would do dinners and stuff on Wednesdays. And we went to Applebee's and I got um, chicken fingers and fries <laughs> all the time, I, like every single time and love me some chicken fingers and fries. And uh, I saw her go get her uh, master's and she switched careers. And she, it's almost like I, I very much so remember 
um, seeing her just show up for herself and take care of herself and be independent in that way. And I absolutely like see how, um, I see how I took that as well. But in terms of, in terms of like real femininity, no, like she was, she was like single momming it out, you know, like figuring it out and, and doing both roles. Who was your Rafiki? Who was the person in your life that was kind of the mentor that felt like it brought you on to your path now? Yeah. I think during, like, around the time of my spiritual awakening, I had a lot of, like, guides coming to me and just supporting me. Um, what age? It was, like, two years ago. <laughs> it, was not, it was not long ago, man. It was not long ago. It's been it's been a it's been a rocket ship. <laughs> yeah. Um. So 24, and I'm 26 now. So, uh, the first person that came to me is actually one of the people that was like deeply activating for my spiritual awakening, and she was this online business manager I had named Selena, and she also went to the same spiritual psychology program that I'm in, and she brought like a little bit of meditation and a little bit of tarot cards and stuff like that. But in the diet, the way that the dynamic played out in business was my spiritual awakening was essentially, there was like this dynamic playing out in business and a similar dynamic playing out in the relationships I was in. So it was all happening. Tends to be like that. Yeah. It was just, it was like, Hey, wake up now. So it was very intense, obviously. So she, um, was 34. I was 24. She was very clear in how she wanted to do her life. She was like really excited about our collaboration. She didn't want to be the front facing person, but she was super entrepreneurial, like the archetypes, um, in terms of setting up the back end. And she was really organized. And she was also the person that took a lot of the leadership responsibilities off of my plate. And I was, I was really not taking responsibility for that. And I was like, oh, she's doing it. She's doing it. She can have these conversations. She can lead the meeting. She can take that leadership position. And eventually, um, she was asking for a lot of money as well. And my money dynamics were very like, sure, totally take it. I want to pay people well. I want this. And I, it was like a lot more than I really needed to be paying someone who was a contractor. It was I didn't realize it at the time, but I was like, totally like go for it. And that's a part of my, my, my personal money stuff. And, yeah. um, eventually she was, she wanted to do a 50, 50 equity split. And this was before my business had real assets. This was literally just my personal brand that I had like an audience and social media. And I had just done a program, but I was literally about to give somebody 50% of me because I wasn't fully clear on who I, and I had this, um, my Rafiki was this guy named Tim at the time who was my mentor. And we met in the, in the gym and his girlfriend watched my YouTube videos and we did a podcast and they have a really awesome consulting company out of Australia. And, um, he like saw this kind of coming as it was happening. And I, the, the thing that was going on was I wasn't able to see who I was and what I wanted to the point where I couldn't even clarify like the vision and the mission and the values of the company. We were building out company values and we were doing this whole thing with the team. And every time her words came in, my words, I didn't know what they were. It was just Mm. not there. It was like deeply avoidant of myself. 
So he came in and he was like, this is not happening. I am like here to help you. I'm by your side. He helped me fire her. And like, I just couldn't do it like deep, deep, deep avoidance. And eventually I just like, I freaked out and I was like, cancel everything. I need to go be alone. I don't know how to do this. And he was like, dude, you are powerful and you are not seeing it. Like, I'm going to help you through this. Wow. That sounds like your lying queen story. That. My lying queen story? Yeah. Like, oh, my lion queen. I was like, lying queen. Got it. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, it does. No. Yeah. That someone was literally trying to take your queendom. Your response yeah. to it was to run away. And then your Rafiki helped you see the truth of who you were. And you came back and you fucking reclaimed it. Yeah. Yeah, that's really true. Wow. That's really cool. You're so awesome. How would you- <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> How would you describe what your queendom is? Like, what is the thing that you're building? Yeah, great question. <sighs> so a lot of um, what I thought I wanted to build, again, it's been such a discovery process of what is it that I want to build. And yeah, uh, the archetypes really come into this, the quiz. But uh, what I thought I initially wanted to build was this, like, idea of what I thought I should be wanting to build like all of these products that help all of these people and like a big podcast and a big this and like just a lot of stuff. And, and it's just like, it's so interesting. I remember I was in a mastermind and we did this vivid vision exercise. And at that point it was in 2018. So again, like two years ago, right around the same time of this, the whole thing with the other woman, Um, I was, my like financial career had basically went, I was in nursing school in Rhode Island. I moved to California the, the, from June to December of that year that I graduated college, I made $50,000 from fitness coaching and brand deals. And then I never did nursing. The next year I made $225,000 from brand deals and fitness coaching the next year I made $750,000. This is just like from my programs and I was doing stuff again, like very, very fast acceleration financially. And then I was learning and I was investing in mentors. And like, I see my younger self in this experience because I see now and I'm, you know, I'm still young, but I see now that I was just really like, I was getting a lot of information so quickly. So I can see how I kind of lost myself in the mix in a way, but my, I wrote down, I was like, I want to like make $5 million next year. And I want to do that. And like, I didn't even know why. And they have us write these, like, how many people do you want to impact? I was like, I don't know, a million, like, you know, just like, (laughs) like, where do you come up with this shit? You know, like, how do you get deeply connected to like that kind of thing? And what I've realized now is what I, what I really want to create and I I think I'm really doing it. Like I don't actually have these external numbers and metrics and like, it's really just, I need to and want to keep showing up in my essence. And I want to express that essence in ways that feels really juicy to me. And I want to keep expanding into the fullness and wholeness of who I am. And I want to like put that out into the world and I want it to just reach the people that it reaches. And I know it's going to do that. And that's, I feel clear that that's my whole mission, you know? So it doesn't really actually matter what the, what the modality is or like podcast or 
Instagram, like it doesn't actually matter. It matters that the essence of the thing and the essence of the gifts is being experienced and I'm experiencing it. And I find that the core, like really the core of anything that someone is offering somebody else is essentially a transformation, like a change. What is the transformation that you are seeking to help people acquire through what it is that you create from your queendom? Yeah. I've always, um, I've always connected to the word authenticity quite a bit. And that's a word that I've heard people call me over and over again, like, wow, you're just really authentic. You're really this, really, which is, they had this question at, um, USM recently, my spiritual psychology program. The question was, what pattern did you take embodiment to learn through? Mm. Like, essentially, why did you become a human? Like, what was the pattern in which you're here to learn through? And then what's the gift? What's the gift you took embodiment to share? And we all came up with the answer and it was, they were both the same thing. And for me, that answer was learning about who you are and breaking down, like authenticity is a really like big concept. So I've been doing my own research and work to break down like what that actually means and how to connect with the essence of that and breaking down all of the patterns and the conditioning of what isn't actually you and the barriers that are created around your heart, around your energy, around all of the different, like, like the bodies that we have, the energy body, the emotional body, and also connecting to the fact that authenticity is whatever's actually happening in this moment at the same time. So it's not like this angry emotion isn't authentic or this thing that you're doing that you did two years ago wasn't authentic because you're getting closer to it now, right? Like it's all authentic. It's really just making sure that you're, that you're always in process of like, can I make sure that I'm continuously devoted to my individuality and my connection to myself and the decisions that I make in my business or my life or my relationship are always have that in mind. Yeah. The thing that comes up with me about authenticity is that (laughs) it's something that you discover as you commit to telling yourself the truth and that we actually don't even like Jung has a quote and it's man is an enigma to himself. And it's the idea that, we're basically gods and we have no idea, like we barely understand ourselves. And so the Mm. path to understanding yourself begins with being honest with yourself. And so if the moment is that you're angry, the only way to really understand the truth of what you are is to admit that you are angry or that you are jealous or that you are envious or that you are sad or that you are in bliss or whatever it is. And there's this feeling of um, if what you're doing is constricting, like if it feels like a constricting energy in your body, it's very likely a pattern that you could liberate yourself from. And if the feeling is expansive in your body, then it's probably your truth. And it's about navigating between the constricting feelings and the expanding feelings. And the question that that brings up in me is, for you right now, what comes up in your life most often that feels like it constricts you and that that's where the work is? Mm, yeah. Mm, 
The thing that constricts me the most right now is, ugh, it's just like I am, <laughs> I am being and, forced. And to that be- sound is exactly the sound. <laughs> yeah, it's like ugh. <laughs> yep. That's how so you know we're getting to some thing. truth. Yep. So the thing that came up was just I I've almost been. I want to use the word force, but it's like, here it is, my truth that I am forcing myself to share, um, but not forcing myself in a way. It's really getting through those. No, I know exactly what you mean. And the thing (laughs) that I want to offer people listening is once you make the commitment to tell the truth, it's almost like you lose a little bit of free will because when you know that it is the truth, it's like, fuck, here we go. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So part of my big work has been to share and not repress. And, oh, it happens. Like my mirror, my biggest mirror is my relationship. And what they always are if you're in truth. (laughs) Oh, it's intense all the time. So (laughs) what comes up is I feel something that's my truth. And my old self or the, the, the self that wasn't devoted to telling myself the truth would almost try to like make every single excuse in the book as to why that's probably not true or not good, or I shouldn't be thinking this, or I can just work through this one on my own, or let me just take responsible for my own projection and be responsible for my own judgments. And I'm responsible for my own thing. And let me just be in my own experience and repress. Hide in the cave. Let me hide in that cave. Oh, ayahuasca. I did ayahuasca in December and that just blew the lid off of that one. Um, Yeah. I did ayahuasca for the first time in November last year. No way. Yeah. Yeah, it it was a huge, like, it removed that veil, and I couldn't even see it myself. And it showed me this swamp of repressed emotions. Yeah, And that's where things go to get toxic. And it's almost like when you repress the emotion or when I repress the emotion, it will go into this swamp, and then all of these thoughts will come out of it that aren't even mine. Or, like, they are, but they're they're, like, festering in this toxic swamp, and they come up into my mind and it's all those like yucky thoughts that I don't want to be having. And and a quick every- side note for people is that yeah. if you keep the emotions stuck in that swamp, I think that that's the source of most chronic disease. Yeah. 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 It'll either turn into chronic disease or some other sort of physical manifestation of illness. 100%. But please go on. Yeah. So my work has been to share um, and not repress. So share in the moment, even if like earlier I was saying interesting moment, I was having a moment of like, Hey, I'm going to share something I'm feeling. And I really don't want to, like I, everything in me is telling me to not do this and not share. And it's, it's always, um, not always, but a lot of the time it's actually something really small. And that's how I know I'm really getting to like the root of this pain for me, because it's sometimes it's so tiny, like I'm judging you for this. And it's a really small thing. And if I, it's like, sometimes it'll come out in like this really explosive way. And I've recently, um, during quarantine have activated anger really for the first time. And I've always either like gone into shutdown. So shutdown for me will like words leave my brain. I don't, it it just goes away and my body will like get really small and it's almost like the helpless space that um, I think it's ventral vagal state or dorsal vagal. Or, yeah. Yeah. And, um, I, and I want to give people listening something to anchor to. You haven't given us a specific example. I, so yeah. 
people are trying to understand, but I can feel that they don't have a thing to hold on to yet. So can you give them an example? Yeah, totally. So one example is I've been, I was judging John for like, John's your partner. Yeah. John's my partner. Um, saying something about someone on social media and his thing is very much about rhetoric and arguments. And this person was making an argument that was, not logical and he kind of like <laughs> sounds stopped. very masculine and so i'm ma- guilty yeah. as fuck <laughs> <laughs> totally fine and my my like people pleaser the, the core wound of that avoidant thing it gets really triggered by directness and like this aggressive kind of like this it like slices through the person and it it's like i i really perceive it as judgment i really perceive it as like rudeness and like I'm disgusted by it and it's almost like I know that I'm disgusted by that part of myself or that shadow with myself but it's so triggered by it so um I was feeling it and I was like I don't need to share this I was like let me share it (laughs) and I and I shared it with him um and like I was putting all of the responsibility on him to like be as kind and loving as humanly possible so I didn't feel even more triggered in the conversation and it's like this part of me is so deep and raw. And so um, like being in that depth of truth, even if it's so small, like a small example of just like a little tiny energetic dynamic or interaction where like I felt something and it was like a small emotion. It was it, it like I like I screamed and like I didn't know how to be in that space. Like my body was just like really rejecting it. So I, I screamed like screeched <laughs> like I did not know how to be there so would that's you be willing to share uh what was the phrase that you yelled I didn't yell a phrase I just it was almost like this ball of energy like came up from my chest and through my throat and it wanted to throw up it was like this like red ball of energy that was just like it I didn't scream anything specific but Yeah. So that's happened a couple of times when I've like connected to that like deep nugget of like rawness within myself. So And that rawness is and the specificity of that rawness is when it comes to when you're experiencing someone who is doing the opposite of people pleasing. Would that be accurate to say? I think so. Yeah. It's yeah, it's like the the part of me that is scared to be judgmental or mean or like bitchy or just really directly like assholey or any of that kind of stuff it's definitely the opposite end of that spectrum and that's yeah you hit the nail on the head what's really interesting is when it comes to um Jungian shadow work the idea is that when someone is behaving in a way that triggers us it's revealing of either two things one they are behaving in a way that we have chosen not to be because we find it's not a fair way to play the game or they're they're embodying something that if we were in our complete power we would access that part of our shadow and it has a piece of power in us that we know is almost meant for us to fully be as powerful as we are but we haven't gone there yet And a really easy example for me is um, someone who uses their understanding of psychology and their ability to speak 
to manipulate people to buy things that they wouldn't want to buy if they weren't manipulated is a part of my shadow. <laughs> oh, that's that, so funny. <laughs> that like marketers. I have exactly. That I have chosen. I could play that way. I see that part of me. I have access to it and I choose not to play that way. And so that's a part of the shadow that I feel I've explored and that I've chosen. I don't want to be like that. But then there's a different type where if I see a man who can walk up to a beautiful woman and not be aggressive, but be like, like just like force his energy on her in a way that she genuinely enjoys, I'm triggered because that's a part of me that I haven't yet tapped into that I know is a part of what I could be if I was in my complete power. And that's a part of my shadow that it's an invitation for me to go explore. And so the question to you is when someone is like what John was being in that moment, that he was being direct and judgmental might be too strong of a word, but like really direct. Mm -hmm. Do you see that as the first shadow example I gave or the second? Um, I definitely resonated with what you said about, I, I kind of resonated with both like the fairness piece like that's not fair like like there shouldn't be that shouldn't be allowed or something like that but I resonated right. more so I think with the part about almost recognizing that I could have that as well and there's right. so many there's so many times where it's on the tip of my tongue like almost having a similar directness or aggressiveness or like what I would perceive as mean or judgmental um and I just like it it doesn't feel like the thing that I should say so I swallow it but it does it almost feels uh, yeah the power piece about when I'm in my full power this is the part of me that I need to integrate that definitely resonates as well yeah and what's interesting for me is I was just telling someone this story um last night actually and it's that I have this program where uh, because I'm good with language, I can still share my truth, but I'm always running the program of what's the nicest way that I can say this truth. Yeah. And I've been in a couple of situations where in the moment it felt like a life or death situation. And I felt like this part of me come forward that was just like the complete embodiment of like a Mufasa energy. And I did not care about people's feelings. It was about what is the most effective way for us not to fucking die. Mm -hmm. And there was a way of directing people that reflected to me a power that I know I do not allow myself to access in most situations because of the people pleasing program. But it showed me like it felt very good to be in that state because I could feel that the highest objective was to take care of everybody in the situation. And it seems to be an interesting hint when you're put into really intense situations to see what you're actually made of when, you, when you're not running the am I a good boy or a good girl program. Yeah. And the thing that comes up in me just to offer is it might be a fun challenge for you for like a week to ask yourself like a question when you journal in the morning or just like when you're still in the morning. What's one thing that I can do today to 
challenge this part of me that thinks she should people please? Like what's one conversation or one message or letter or text or phone call where I could be 10% more direct and then just run that for a week and see what happens? I'm going to do that. Thank you. Yeah, that's great. What is it that you want your life to look like five years from now? Five years from now, it does feel like it does feel like there's potentially a kid in the picture. Like five years feels like somewhere around that vicinity. It does feel like there's marriage in the picture. It does feel like there's this like it feels like there's a, there's multitudes of layers that I'm going to be accessing within the next five years that it almost feels like I can't grasp onto what it's going to look like, but I totally understand. Yeah. It just feels like I've been accelerating very quickly. And if I'm going to keep at the speed that I'm at, it's going to be really, it's going to be light years different in a lot of ways. You're just going to ascend out of your body and not be a person anymore. Yep. Yep. <laughs> <I'll> just, <laughs> be super enlightened and <laughs> just <laughs> a completely different being, you know. A question that I think is really useful to people is um, all of us have a moment, at least one, but probably multiple ones where we feel like everything around us has failed, has broken. You know, it's that archetypical on the bathroom floor crying moment. Um, you know, when Simba is weeping in the valley because his father is dead. And I think it's really important for people to hear other people's stories of these moments and then how those people began to crawl out of that low state. So would you be willing to share, like, what was your lowest moment? And can you take us directly to the experience of like, the minute or the hour and what was your journey of crawling out of that valley? So the, the first thing that came up that it it's in the realm of business. It's, it's been this like, um, in hindsight, it's been about a two-year slow burn of, of burnout. And about like a year and a half, I guess. But I'm trying to like pinpoint a very exact moment for you. And I'm not sure if I have one in my head at the moment. So would it be okay if I if I went to went into a low experience? Absolutely. And the first thing that comes to mind when I hear you say that is maybe there's something in your ayahuasca experience. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, we can go there. Um, yeah. So in my in my last ayahuasca experience, it was in the, this past December, uh, right at the end of the year. So it was December 30th was our Actually, wow, I'll awesome. do December 29th was like the peak of the actual experience because we did three evenings in a row. 
yeah, it was a really wonderful way to close out 2019. And going into that experience, um, I felt a lot of apprehension. I felt a lot of energy boiling up in my body. I felt a lot of tension. And it was almost like going into the, I went to a retreat center called Saltara. It's really great. Um, oh, me too. Oh, they're, yeah, they're incredible there. And they do a really beautiful job of supporting you in setting intentions and getting clearer on how you would really like to navigate the experience. So going into, and they have this awesome hero's journey journal thing, and I'm sure you've got it. It's awesome. So yeah, it's great. I was like, this is an awesome resource. So going into the intention setting, it's almost like I wanted to trick ayahuasca out of whatever the thing was that I really had an intention to do. Good luck. I I didn't want to look at it. (laughs) I was like, maybe I can just do this thing and maybe we can just focus on, you know, this thing instead of the real thing that I was really feeling underneath. And that obviously didn't happen. So Mm -hmm. in my first journey on the first evening, it was, I didn't actually feel the ayahuasca. I didn't take enough. And they essentially said this was like a testing dose evening to kind of see how you interact with it. So I didn't feel it. I didn't take extra. Um, So it was fine. The next day I go in and I didn't feel it up until maybe 10 minutes before I took my second dose. And that's when I really started to get a lot of the psychedelic kind of energy kicking in. And then I took a second dose. So the following three hours were really, really, really intense. And what it felt like was almost like labor. And I've never had a child, so I don't actually know what labor feels like. But the energy of labor is essentially how I experienced it was we are in this painful experience until we're out and we're just going to sit, we're just going to be in it. And like, you cannot escape it. There's nothing comfortable to grasp onto. You're just in it. (laughs) And and it felt like um, I had plenty of nausea. I was curled up in a ball. They were singing the Icaros. um, The maestros were singing the Icaros during the journey and, at times it would almost hit my ear in this way that was like deeply uncomfortable. It was like, oh, like it was just painful. And I was like trying to look for somebody to like grasp onto. And, you know, we hadn't had salt in a while and the diet's really light. And I had this recognition that all of these things that we try to grasp onto for comfort were really stripped away in a, in a deep way. And it just, it made, it was, it was just very much so like, okay, this is how an ego death is. It really works. Like it strips away everything that makes you feel comfortable and it takes you to the space that you don't want to go. And that space for me was very much so, uh, it was like a felt sense of that again, repressed emotional swamp that I was really in. And the swamp had a lot of like deep, deep feelings of things I was not expressing things that I didn't feel as though I was bringing forward to the table. And then I was also lying about something in my relationship and my partner and I are in an open relationship, but I was lying and I wasn't sharing something. And I was also not, um, it was like a very complicated open relationship situation and I won't go into the details, but are there any open relationship situations that aren't complicated? I don't think so. <laughs> I, I mean, honestly, I, I really just see open relationship as such 
a deep space to do the deep work. It's like, yeah. really, that's just what it is, regardless of if you like this person or that person or you love this one. It's just like, it's a space to, to be in a, a deep workspace. Um, I agree. And like, just it's get activated left and right. Yeah, it's a ceremony. So the um, the it really just revealed to me how much re- emotion I had been repressing and what I had been hiding. And it ha- I realized that it was my body had been like shutting off for months. Yep. Like I was just like sexually shutting off in a lot of ways. I was emotionally putting up a barrier around my heart in a lot of ways. Um, and it was like, I realized that it was a couple months worth of that pattern taking hold and in, in a really intense way. And I, I didn't even see it at yeah. all. I was like, I didn't realize that I was doing this. And when I recognized it, I recognized that this is what happens if I keep going into the people pleasing space. Like it gets bad. Yeah. It actually like, it's almost like when you realize what your patterns are and you don't do anything about them, it's actually worse than if you I were completely agree. <laughs> it's terrible. <Yep. laughs> That's funny. Yeah. I was like, Oh my God, this is like, my life is going to get ripped apart now that I know this and I'm not doing anything about it. So there's a quote that comes to mind. It's like the only antidote to a little bit of consciousness is more consciousness. Yeah, man, that's the truth. <laughs> that's the truth. And so what would you say was the takeaway piece of advice for the step-by-step out of that like low place? Yeah. So from that, from that space, um, in the ayahuasca experience, it was really metaphorical and it wasn't like directed like messages with language. But after that, I ended up being in a space where I was actually able to share all of the repressed emotions, the things that I was repressing and lying about. And it, it was like one of the most painful things I've ever done. And it was, it felt like dying. It felt like I was dying. And the next, you know, day or so we were still there and we had like the final day where we didn't have any of the medicine and we just relaxed and enjoyed each other. And then we get back home and we really set intentions moving forward to keep the line of communication as open as humanly possible. And I made a commitment to myself to continuously commit to not repressing and to not closing my heart off. And my first intention was to break down the barriers I've built around my heart. And that meant a lot of like consistent truth telling to myself and consistent truth sharing. And it I could it not has... resonate with that more. Oh, really? That's really cool. Well, I'm sorry, but I also, <laughs> yes, that's really cool that it's, it's, it resonates, but yeah, it's been a lot of um, really continuously keeping my heart open. And when I feel it close, not hiding from that and not running away from that closed offness and not um, going into the safe cavern of like whatever feels comfortable and the people pleasing and, and the pattern. So that has been still occurring and I've it's definitely <laughs> gotten better in a lot of ways and there's been a lot of like deep shifts in my relationship, which is really beautiful. And with that, it's still just, it's, it's again, like you said, more consciousness. It's still like a daily commitment to myself. And, um, 
it's like it's almost like to con- to access that level of power that you really have you have to really go through it <laughs> to really get to the Absolutely. core of these patterns and it's i can see why a lot of people don't do it it's not for the faint of heart if you had to give one piece of practical specific advice to the amanda one year ago about how to let down one or some of the walls around her heart what is a specific piece of tactical advice that you would tell her to do yeah the first thing that comes to mind is it's really just some language tools that i think could be useful that i've been using as of as of recently and that's really just opening up any kind of feeling with hey can i share something it feels absolutely terrifying to share my i really don't feel comfortable it's it hurts a lot right now to bring this forward but is it a lot is it okay if i share this and just setting the container with that and being allowed to kind of just take up some room there in that moment to be supported in having a safe space to express this thing that's really really difficult I think is going to be really helpful to one year ago, Amanda. Um, And just allowing her to feel like an an even deeper level of somewhat comfortability to go, to go into those conversations. But I think that language tool would be really useful. And I'm sorry that we didn't get to the archetypes, but um, you'll just have to come back on. But the question, (laughs) yeah, that I like to ask to, close this out is imagine that you've lived your dream life and that you've accomplished everything that you have set out to do and that you are now an old woman and you know that at the end of the day you're going to die peacefully in your sleep how would you spend that last day and who would you want to be there with you I think my initial thought is not having too many people there with me. Like six feels like the maximum and feels like John and my dogs and my mom and sister and dad. It doesn't feel like that many other people. It just Your feels children? like Children, yeah, that I didn't think of them. <laughs> children, um, but also I think the day would would have people in it, and then the other part of the day would have no people in it. Yeah, like I would want to see people, but maybe for a third of the day, and the other two thirds of the day, I would really just want to be with myself, and I would want to be in the sun, whether that's just like on a lounge chair with a nice cold beverage, just enjoying the sun. That could be laying in the grass and that under that same sun, but just really like receiving the energy of the sun and receiving the energy of the earth and receiving the energy of the wind and even potentially having my feet in the ocean, receiving the energy of the ocean and just like being with the elements, I think is really what is calling to me with that question. Yeah. And it doesn't actually feel like there's much more that I would want to do or 
want to experience. It's like that feels like the exact thing that I would want. And if you could leave one message on a piece of paper to John, to your family, and to your children, what would you write right before you went to sleep that night? Details are tough for me, just like like poignant. So I think I would say keep following your path of truth and never stop. Beautiful. Amanda, thank you for coming on. Thank you for doing what you're doing in the world. I can really see very clearly that it's helping a lot of people understand themselves enough so they can actually create, which I think is how people heal themselves, is to find their way to create. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. This is a really epic experience. (laughs) I feel like it was perfectly timed and you are really really incredible thank you for doing this it's really beautiful it's a healing experience for the guest so thank thank you you. that's actually what i seek to do with this podcast so i'm glad that you felt that yeah i did thank you so much eric you're so welcome